Welcome to Talking Sense, the podcast where we discuss all things detection dogs. Broadcasting from Scent City, Las Vegas, and the Silver State Canine Training Center, your host, Cameron Ford. Hello, I'm your host, Cameron Ford, and welcome to this episode of Canine's Talking Sense. On this episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing uh, one of the researchers over at the Canine Olfaction Laboratory at Texas Tech University. Uh, her name is Mallory DeChant. Mallory has done some very good research and very interesting research, um, both in the world of cadaver dogs and now also in the working dog world with the explosive detection and then more broadly on odor thresholds. On this episode, we discuss some of that stuff. We also go into some unique information regarding how dogs physiologically react when they come in contact with large odor thresholds. Um, so without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this episode. Mallory DeChant from Texas Tech University Canine Olfaction Laboratories. Hello, I'm your host, Cameron Ford. I am broadcasting again here on this next episode from Texas Tech. With me is Mallory Deschant. Mallory, I got to meet you yesterday, and we got to talk about a little bit about some of your projects here at the uh, Scent Laboratory. But give me or give us our listeners a brief description of your background. How did you end up here at Texas Tech, and how importantly, how did you end up working with dogs and scent? So I'm a first-year doctoral student here with uh, Dr. Nathan Hall, but I did my master's at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, and I worked with human remain detection dogs. So I focused on canine physiology and completely fell in love with olfaction work. So I found Nathan, and um, our interests align with research, and mm -hmm. so I'm interested in looking at um, the physiological aspects of olfaction, specifically in detection dogs and trying to optimize their olfactory thresholds. Okay. A little bit about the cadaver stuff. Tell us about that study and what you did there and what you learned from that one. So I looked at core body temperature, salivary, cortisol, and then the behavior, the overall olfactory behavior of the mm -hmm. performance of these dogs. I had three different search site scenarios. Mm -hmm. So I had rubble, a wide area that had lots of trees, wooded area, mm -hmm. and then a mass casualty scenario where I had full body cadavers, which mm -hmm. is actually very rare to have female search and rescue dogs train with mm -hmm. full body. Usually they just have smaller sources. Mm -hmm. And so it was interesting to see the impact of the full body cadavers. I mean, we had eight full bodies that okay. were above ground and also buried. Okay. And it was just scent overload. So obviously they can smell it. It's very strong odor. Mm -hmm. But the dogs would go in there and it would just completely stress them out. They didn't know where to alert because okay. odor was everywhere. Okay. And the other thing that we saw was the core body temp. Mm -hmm. um, these working dogs work at high core body temp levels. Yep. So they're usually 105, 106 Fahrenheit. Okay. And our typical pet dogs, you panic at 1025. Yeah. But we're not panicking with these working dogs at 106 mm -hmm. because they're completely fine. They can work that way. There's yep. absolutely no problem. So it was really interesting to see 
that yes, this does actually happen mm -hmm. and we need to be able to train with full body because that's what they're exposed to when they're deployed. Sure. Um, and so it's just a scent overload because of the, the mass scent from the body. And so those physiological reactions changed dramatically when they came in contact with the full bodies or was it only marginal changes? So actually we saw an increase of core body temp right before they started searching. So kind okay. of that anticipation of, mm -hmm. oh, I'm about to work, I'm about to do something, search mm -hmm. for something. Mm -hmm. um, and then it continued to increase, obviously, because they're moving, they're running, they're going mm -hmm. over rubble, they're running in the search area. Yep. And then it continued to increase after they were done, which is really important because we know that they're increasing core body temp when they're working, just like us. When yep. we go for a run, we're getting hot, we're sweating. Yep. But then we put the dogs in to their crate in the vehicle of the handler, and mm -hmm. we expect them to cool down. Yeah. But they don't. It's still increasing. There's no airflow. Maybe there's a fan, but uh -huh. we still need to be actively cooling these dogs. Yep. And so that's one of the main things we saw with core body mm -hmm. temp, with the activity of searching. Would you see potentially the same thing for explosive detection dogs that work in a similar environment where it's an open area? So let's say military members searching what we call routes, long roadways going, and the amount of explosive there could be in the neighborhood of 50 to 100 pounds or more. And um, what that dog gets in training, though, typically is, let's say, two or three pounds. So, again, similar to cadaver where you're working and training on a smaller amount. But real world, you're faced with finding larger amounts in a very austere environment. So would that, would you, what you saw there, could that be similar in nature to what an explosive detection dog would face as well? Absolutely, because it's still the scent overload. You have mm -hmm. this mass amount. You're usually training on this small amount, which mm -hmm. is great but then you're exposing them to the operational setting of, oh my goodness, there's so much here, we mm -hmm. know it's here. Mm -hmm. But I would suspect that you would see the same core body type increase mm -hmm. before they're mm -hmm. actually searching because they know their job, mm -hmm. they know where they're going, and mm -hmm. so I would suspect that you would see the same increase. Okay, and in best practices, it's probably not good to take a dog right after it works and then go throw it into a crate because you're done. in your mind you're done, oh, I'm gonna put them in the crate. Is it, what, would you, what would be best practices after the search is done? What should the handler do? Uh, cool them off. Mm -hmm. It's just like us. After we work out, we're not just going to go sit on the couch, right? We're yep. going to stretch, maybe mm -hmm. walk around. Mm -hmm. um, with the dogs, they're not going to sweat. They can't sweat like mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. So we can make sure they're drinking water for yep. sure. We can have a fan. Mm -hmm. um, we can do an ice bath if mm -hmm. it's really, really hot. Mm -hmm. um, there's actual vests that we can put on to cool them down. Mm -hmm. There's multiple ways, but we definitely need to be okay. doing something actively because yep. the dog can't on its own in the crate. Yeah, and most times that's what everybody typically does. They throw them in the back of the patrol car or they throw them in a crate or what have you. And we are causing potential hazards for the dogs by doing that. Um, you brought up another interesting thing, the physiological reactions to the dogs to odor. Did you see changes when there was more odor present, less odor present? Is there, does that match? Does their physiological response match to the amount of odor present? So if it's small amount, not a whole lot of reaction compared to a larger amount of odor and a bigger reaction, is that something that happens or is it about the same? So we did see a physiological reaction with the more scent, mm -hmm. um, the more odor, the larger bodies, because it, it was stressing them out almost. And I don't mm -hmm. want to use the word stress because mm -hmm. these dogs, it takes a lot to stress sure. them out. But you would see them, they would be panting, they're pacing, 
Um, some of them were even urinating, and it's very obvious. They know where the source is because mm-hmm. it's so much, mm-hmm. so potent. But it, it was just too much. Mm-hmm. And so you see a difference, whereas when you use smaller sources, they can handle it because that's what they're known to do on mm-hmm. a regular training mm-hmm. base. Yep. So we did see difference just observing the dog's behavior. Okay. So when having large amounts versus smaller amounts – I'll go into, you know, kind of what your research is now. You're looking at thresholds, right? Your, your whole goal here at Texas Tech or your biggest study you've been doing right now is basically what? Give the listeners a description of what you're looking at now and what you've done so far. So I've trained the dogs to alert on amyl acetate, synthetic banana. And my whole goal is to see if training with further diluting the amyl acetate, can I improve their olfactory threshold to amyl acetate? And so we start training at a very strong smell. I can smell it Mm -hmm. very easily, and I know the dogs can. And so um, it's barely diluted. It's a couple steps from pure, if you will. Mm -hmm. And we do a few days with that odor, and then we assess their threshold for two days, and Mm -hmm. then we go to the next so we dilute it even further mm-hmm. and then we test it again and then we go one more time we dilute even further mm-hmm. and we actually see that when we increase the dilution for the training mm-hmm. that we can improve their olfactory threshold performance okay and so they can smell smaller amounts of this amyl acetate which is incredible mm-hmm. and so for instance the first training the first two training days of mm-hmm. the very concentrated versus a little bit more diluted they were in the parts per million. Um, We had one dog that was in the parts per billion. Mm -hmm. But then when we go to the final stage of diluting it even further, so it's a very small amount, Mm -hmm. we were in the parts per billion approaching parts per trillion, which is incredible. Absolutely. And we had one dog, Ranger, who was outstanding Mm -hmm. compared to all of the others. Not that the others didn't do well. (laughs) But he just excelled. He was in the parts per trillion. It was just incredible. And he is available for adoption. (laughs) So he would be a great working dog. I I actually got to see the graph, and it was amazing. The other dogs showed really well, but what stood out to me immediately was Ranger Spike. And that's when you explained to me, yeah, that's because for him, he was going into the parts per trillion ability to detect. So... That was, again, we are always still learning the levels in which DOS can detect. Um, I know you're going to transfer this over to explosive odors um, with the goal of doing this, right, to find what our low threshold can be for the dog? Yes, yes. So the whole goal of this study was to look at training and can training improve Mm -hmm. uh, threshold, and it Mm -hmm. can. Mm -hmm. So looking from the beginning stages compared to the last stages, Mm -hmm. we saw an improvement. Mm -hmm. And so we're not expecting the threshold to be similar to amyl acetate because they're different components. Um, But we expect that with training, starting at a more concentrated and then Mm -hmm. diluting it further and further mm-hmm. that we're going to see these improvements that we've seen now because mm-hmm. we do also have control dogs mm-hmm. where we're keeping them at the same uh, concentration and we're not seeing any improvement of threshold mm-hmm. so it's obvious mm-hmm. that when we increase the dilution for training that we can improve and increase their threshold okay two questions first one is common is called saturation point where the term that we use is once i put an odor out and it's been out X amount of time, 
that say the distance between six foot and the odor, the dog has a hard time distinguishing any more threshold shifts. Um, as opposed to with that first hour, the dog can get within, let's say, a foot or less and be highly accurate. Is that a true uh, understanding of what saturation point is? And do you guys see that if I put something out or in your research, have you seen where it almost becomes like trying to find a piece of bread in the bread factory? Is that accurate? Yes. So actually when we make, when I make the jars for the study, I do it 24 hours in advance because it's so diluted compared to the, uh, the first stage where we're training. It's very concentrated. You can make it the same day. It's very easy mm -hmm. to smell. Mm -hmm. um, but when we dilute it more, I like it to sit with a cap on the jar overnight mm -hmm. so it can volatilize. And that way, when I take the cap off to use it, mm -hmm. um, the dog still needs to be right over the jar, but it's easier to smell for mm -hmm. the dog mm -hmm. because it's not just sitting there. I didn't just make it. It needs to have time to volatilize. Mm -hmm. We need to think about the odor plumes that are coming from mm -hmm. the source. Mm -hmm. And so you can see um, just watching the dogs over the period of the entire study in mm -hmm. the beginning when it's concentrated, the dogs can be a few feet away mm -hmm. and still be alerting on the jar. Mm -hmm. Whereas where we dilute it more, mm -hmm. the dog is going to be right up against the jar. Mm -hmm. Its nose is going to be right mm -hmm. there along the mesh mm -hmm. and it's going to be inhaling deeply because mm -hmm. it's, it's more diluted. It's not as concentrated. It needs time to release, if yep. you will, yep. and expand more yep. in the room. Okay. So leads into the second question I had. When starting odor, the very first time I start teaching a dog odor, is it better to have a larger amount of odor so that that way is distinguishable, or is it best to have a smaller amount of odor requiring the dog to work in order to find it? What In best practices, what's the best way to imprint a dog on odor, higher amount or lower amount? So it depends what you consider to be low and high. Okay. Um, but I would say in the very beginning, you mm -hmm. want something that's fairly concentrated because mm -hmm. you can't start something that's very diluted, very minute. It's mm -hmm. hard to smell. Yep. Um, but you can certainly work your way there throughout your training process. Mm -hmm. um, but if it's concentrated, I would start there mm -hmm. and then slowly dilute it over time mm -hmm. to get to that dilution point where you want. So essentially reach their threshold, yep. train there, because if they can smell a diluted small amount, mm -hmm. they can easily reach the mm -hmm. higher concentrated. Mm -hmm. But if you only train on a concentrated odor, can they really smell the diluted one as well? Yeah, it's hard it depends. To say. Yeah. It depends on their threshold. Yeah. And so if we're training them mm -hmm. at the more diluted one, mm -hmm. we're better setting them up for Correct. the higher concentrated one. Yeah. So it, it's really not you know a one concentration fits all. Sure. You need to work yeah. on it and dilute it and. Mm -hmm. Do you want to attend America's largest police canine training seminar? Well, make sure you head to HITS, which is held this year in Chicago at McCormick Place, August 13th through the 16th. HITS is America's premier canine seminar, the largest, most diverse canine training event in the United States. This year is HITS' 13th year of coming together. Are you a canine trainer, handler, or supervisor? This event is one of the best in the nation that brings together all the professionals within our industry, offering classes in a variety of different areas to ensure all of our attendees get the best, most diverse education. Check out 
hitsk9.net, that's www.hitsk9.net for further information and register today. This episode was brought to you by Silver State Canine. Silver State Canine is one of the nation's premier canine training facilities. Are you somebody looking to have a professional career as a canine handler? Then attend one of our handler courses. Are you currently a handler and looking to become a canine trainer? Then attend one of our Train the Trainer courses. We also offer a variety of fully trained detection canines. Are you the sport of nose work? Silver State Canine also has you covered. We offer a variety of nose work classes and nose work seminars. For further information, visit our website, www.silverstatecanine.com. That's www.silverstatek9.com. So in, in our world as typical, let's say, narcotics, explosive, whatever, um, you want to go with a higher surface area versus using the word weight. Um, where I'm having good reaction with the environment, odor is coming off pretty strongly, working my way down to where I have maybe a, a, some type of container that has a very, let's say, a small hole in it and only a small amount of odors in there versus starting off with that jar with that small hole in it and then occasionally throwing out the one where I have a lot of substance kind of laid out, correct? Right. So we want to set up our dogs for their best. Success. Yeah, for mm-hmm. success. And if you start on that small service area, that very small hole, mm-hmm. you know, maybe they can get it. But if you have the larger service area in mm-hmm. the beginning and then mm-hmm. slowly you get smaller and yep. smaller, you'll be able to trust your dog for these small areas. Yep. And then combined with what the study that Nathan's been doing is in your contaminants in the area, things like that. The dog is still consistently looking for and locating the target substance. Correct. Right. So, which goes into in that same training uh, model as through research, having your area as free from contamination as possible is an important factor to ensure that we know what the dog is learning to. So kind of go about, you know, what are some best practices? Let's say I'm a, I'm a dog handler and I've gone to my area and I've set up training, let's say in an office. And I put the odor, let's say my block of C4 or my little baggie of, of heroin into a drawer. Um, is that a good idea or sh- is there some things I can do to help mitigate some of the risk later on if I want to use that area again or somebody else goes into using it? Or what are some things that may contaminate the training aid itself? So it depends on what material you are using. Mm-hmm. So is it porous? Are you putting it on something where it's going to absorb that odor and then you're going to have the residue later mm-hmm. on? Um, so I would definitely not just put the raw source or odor mm-hmm. onto the material that it's going to stay. Yeah. I would definitely have it in a jar in some kind of um, yeah, muscle. some yeah. kind of material where it's not going to be mm-hmm. leaking, seeping, mm-hmm. and absorbing that odor. Mm-hmm. So we can be confident in every search mm-hmm. after that day. Yeah. Um, but cleaning is very important. We mm-hmm. want to be confident that they're alerting on where the odor is mm-hmm. and not residue. Mm-hmm. 
um, you try to take a picture of my jar and I wouldn't yep, yep. like you because <laughs> you weren't wearing gloves. Yes, yep. So I'm very particular yep. um, with my I saw sweetie. your signs even throughout yes. the lab that says do not touch without gloves on. Yes. And even the signs are laminated <laughs> so that way they don't have the paper itself is not absorbing everything else in the area. Yep. Yes, I'm very particular. Everything needs to be clean. I make new jars every day. Mm -hmm. um, I have a very thorough cleaning process. Everyone mm -hmm. has to wear gloves if they're mm -hmm. touching the jar. Mm -hmm. I don't let anyone touch anything even mm -hmm. if they are wearing gloves. Mm -hmm. It's myself and the people who are helping me. Yep. Um, and even the dogs. Uh, so we have a, a mesh material over mm -hmm. our lineup. Mm -hmm. If they slobber on it, if they touch it whatsoever, mm -hmm. we remove it and clean mm -hmm. it for every mm -hmm. single trial. Yep. Even between trials, if they don't touch it, wherever the odor is, we mm -hmm. take it off and mm -hmm. put a new one on. Because mm -hmm. we want to be confident that they're alerting mm -hmm. on where the jar is, not yep. where maybe there's some residual odor because it um, adhered to that mesh, which is mm -hmm. porous. Yep. And, and to give the listeners a description of what I got to witness today, it's very similar in nature to what the professional industry does. So they had a lineup of what I would call basically like a PVC type container. So very similar to those that use the PVC wall pipes and so forth. Um, that PVC container within that container uh, has a uh, glass jar inside it. Over the opening of that PVC container, which contains a glass jar, is kind of like windscreen, or like a, a screen you'd have at your porch. That square is, is fastened over the PVC opening by rubber band, and the dog goes down the lineup, indicates on the correct location. The handler does not know the location. She would call out the number. The evaluator would confirm correct. She would use her clicker, click, the dog was correct. Dog received its food reward. She moves out of the area. The hides is moved around by the individual wearing gloves. And the reason for that is obviously all the other containers have PVC. All the other containers have the screening over them, the glass jars in them. So the only distinguishable difference is the target source, the odor. So it's very clear to the dog what they're looking for. Not only clear, but as that research is showing, they're diluting it down to almost the parts per trillion on this particular chemical they're using with the goal of going into the explosive side of it. So back to that lineup, the PVC lineup, so those that use PVC similar in nature as you guys did, how do you clean that? What are the things that you do to clean that? So I use something called Rescue, um, and it's very commonly used in veterinary clinics, shelters. Mm -hmm. It just kills everything, essentially, if you're using the right concentration. So after every single day, after every dog, mm -hmm. I clean not only the, the wood part, the bottom of it, mm -hmm. but also the PVC on the inside. The outside, I take the caps off. Mm -hmm. um, I use hot water and Dawn to clean that, and then I sanitize it with mm -hmm. the Rescue. The mesh and the rubber band comes off. That mm -hmm. goes through a similar procedure. Mm -hmm. Use Alkanox. That's going to sanitize it. Put it in an oven. Make mm -hmm. sure everything is killed. Mm -hmm. um, and then same thing with the jars. Mm -hmm. Dawn dish soap. We use an ultrasonic cleaner. Mm -hmm. Alkanox solution. It goes mm -hmm. to the sanitized process. And then in the oven. Mm -hmm. So the jars have more than... Um, you know, the mesh and rubber bands, but that's mm. because the odor is physically touching it. Yep. So we don't want anything to adhere mm. to the jar. Yep. Um, but even in the room, it, if someone goes into that room that mm. we use, mm. they, you know, litter the floor with mm. treats or there's, mm. you know, powder or something. We yep. always clean, mop mm. it, mm. Um, and we use rescue because there's no odor mm. to it. Mm. And so it's going to be clean. I know that the entire room, everything is clean and there's mm. no 
you know, you touch it, you touch yep. the jar after you just ate lunch, and mm -hmm. now it smells like steak or something sure. like that. We sure. don't have to worry about that. Yeah. So those that may not obviously have all those things to their disposal, um, what would be rescue sounded like the one that would be the easiest for someone to get to at least clean their the PVC location or the or let's say the multiple hide location, whether it be boxes, the wall, whatever their their method of using for training uh, would work. What would you is that or would you do anything else besides just that on the PVC? Let's say let's say, let's say it's a wall with PVC openings to it. What would you do? Um, well, I would definitely be using gloves, mm -hmm. first of all, mm -hmm. for the handler who's ever placing the, the odor. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, Rescue is great. I'm sure there's other products out there that are similar. You just mm -hmm. want to make sure um, you're not leaving any residue. So mm -hmm. if you can smell it, for sure the dog can mm -hmm. leave it. And the longer you do, so after the dogs run through our lineup, I clean it, and mm -hmm. then it has at least 24 hours for it to air dry or yep. sit there so yep. the odor can dissipate if there's anything mm -hmm. left from the mm -hmm. rescue. Mm -hmm. um, but if you use like bleach or something like that, mm -hmm. that's going to have a really high smell. Mm -hmm. You're going to smell it. It's going to mm -hmm. leave some kind of mm -hmm. odor residue. So to this is an argument we always have in the detection dog world. Um, the highly controlled, no contamination, gloves on, the whole nine yards. So I have gloves on for my hands, but if I'm staying there talking like we're doing right now, I'm breathing over it, my skin follicles are, or, or my hair follicles and lack of mine anyway, but skin wraps and all these things are all falling down all on or around this thing. So unless I'm wearing a hazmat suit, I'm still putting out a level of contamination to that search area. So would one argument be like, okay, well fine, I'm gonna touch everything. Just like there's PVC everywhere, there's all these other things. If I touch everything, my scent, the trainer scent or human scent, is innocuous to the dog. It's just another static noise to the environment. What would your statement or, or counter to that be? Or what's the why? Why say okay? Well, we use the gloves because of this. Why could or could you not? Why would you say no, 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 no? Still always use gloves. Well, so of course you're going to have things in the environment, pollen, you know, mm -hmm. hair follicles, mm -hmm. skin follicles, everything like that. So you, it can't be 100% perfect, Correct. which is fine because in the real world, Nothing there's is. wind, there's yes. dust, mm -hmm. there's dirt. Mm -hmm. um, so I would just say don't use the same jar every single day. Mm -hmm. So make sure you make a clean one or mm -hmm. whatever the mm -hmm. sample is. Mm -hmm. Um, that way you're sure, you know, you didn't sneeze in it one day. Definitely sure. try not to sneeze in it. Yes, <laughs> yeah, of course. So, yep. um, but yeah, I would just use uh, new, mm -hmm. new odors, new sources. So one of the things that handlers run into constantly is the containers that they're given the narcotics in or the explosives in, most times narcotics, are sealed plastic, you know, containers. Um, we know odor over time can be, you know, pushed through those layers. But there's still that there, and they can't modify that a whole lot. So I'll give you an example, a visual example, is they'll have this narcotic inside a sealed plastic container, which then sometimes have another plastic container over that, which they then stick into a duck cloth or a nylon bag that's got Velcro on it, and they'll put that as a training aid. Um, what, what are some of the pitfalls in dealing with that? You know, and they are handcuffed to that part. Is there something better to potentially use to store that odor in? They're stuck to the plastic bag part. But is there a better way to contain that training aid and then put that training aid out in their environment? Yeah, so the plastic bag, like you said, it's mm -hmm. going to, the odor is going to dissipate over time. So mm -hmm. if 
they can't change the storage part, mm -hmm. maybe they could put that bag in a glass Correct. bottle or some glass yep. container. Yep. Um, so that way you're not mixing all these different mm -hmm. drugs or yep. um, explosives or whatnot. Um, so that way at least you have some control. Mm -hmm. I mean, the odor is still going to be on the bag, but mm -hmm. you take that out and use that to train. But then you mm -hmm. put that in something else that's not going to absorb it. So then essentially yep. you have bag after bag after bag. So yep. that's your entire odor Set source. Yeah. But then you're putting it not in on wood. It's not just free mm -hmm. out in mm -hmm. the environment. You mm -hmm. can put that in a jar and then just use the jar yep. um, for wherever you're training. Would you say also that if I take that plastic narcotics bag that the narcotics are in, put that in a jar and close that jar. And it's a jar typically that Teflon lid like you guys have. Um, when I open that jar up, the collection of odor that's been seeping out from that bag into that jar is going to also put off off gas quite strongly. So at least it gives me, when I first put that training aid out, I have a nice reactive substance right now because it's been contained in that jar, and then I take it out of the jar. Now it's pushing out a significant amount of odor because it's been stored in that. Is that a good assumption? Or yes, a good yes, absolutely. It, of okay. course, depends on how concentrated the odor Correct. is. But yeah. yes, it'll be sitting there in a closed jar. You'll mm -hmm. be able to smell it theoretically when you mm -hmm. open it, depending mm -hmm. on the concentration. But yep. yes. Yep. That's a lot better than putting it in the, in the canvas bag, sticking it back in your Pelican case or what have you, and, and worrying about something like that. So when so now we've got we've we've kind of covered a few other things. I also use within our training areas, sometimes we use like a paper plate as a barrier between the environment and the substance. Um, sometimes what's been kind of cool is those little, like if you go to a baseball game, the hot dogs come in that little plat that little paper thing. We use that and we can pour substance into that. That creates a good surface area to place that out. And the cool thing is you can easily pour it back into whatever container you use and toss that, that barrier away. Um, and again, it's paper, so it's knockless to the environment. The dogs aren't, you know, and you can put those out everywhere if you wanted to, to make sure the dog is part of your proofing style. But so we, we've covered, you know, setting up our training area. We've got some of the protections in place. We're allowing the best surface area for the odor to react to. I've now had it out for, let's say, an hour, and then the first dog runs. And then the dog next dog runs, it's two hours later. What would you say is some of the things that a dog or that a handler will deal with when um, a substance has been out in the area? There's, we call it pooling. You know, where would you say... Um, it, we'll use a room as an example. Obviously, I'm using a desk drawer or something like that. What are some things that the handlers need to bear, be looking for um, when a substance is out for an extended period of time in an environment like a room? So, yeah, you'll definitely get pooling, especially looking at the first dog compared to the 20th dog that goes in there after mm -hmm. multiple hours in a room. Mm -hmm. So the first dogs that go in there after you just place it, maybe it's a few minutes, if mm -hmm. that they're going to be very spot on when they're targeting. So you have it in the drawer, they're sitting or staring at that specific drawer, they're alerting right there at the source. Mm -hmm. Compared to if it's the end of the day, it's been several hours, mm -hmm. maybe they're not even close to the drawer, maybe they're on the other side of the desk because mm -hmm. it's you're going to have that scent plume, it's going to be pooling, it's mm -hmm. not just staying right there because it's been several hours. Yeah. So you need to keep in mind when the source was put there, mm -hmm. just because they're learning on the opposite end of the desk or mm -hmm. maybe the keyboard drawer or something mm -hmm. like that, mm -hmm. doesn't mean that it's right in that area. It's Correct. in that general location. Yeah. And, and we don't have to be so highly specific, especially as time goes by, that the dog is within an inch of where we know we put that substance. 
it's going to collect and and off gas or kind of created the mental the mental picture of like fog. The fog is pushing out of that location, and then over time, the fog gets bigger and bigger and bigger. But that density, you know, the odor is the same. And obviously, in your threshold thing, we have dogs we call fringing, so that they get that first level of odor. They're like, oh, found it, and handlers want that dog to kind of move through those threshold shifts and get a little bit closer or as close as possible. So your research kind of ties into some of that as well is, okay, they can go down this low. Um, concerns people will say, well, I don't want my dog to fringe. I want my dog to get as close as possible. What are some things that you'd say to do in training to kind of help get that dog to not fringe, but get closer to source? You kind of covered it a little bit. I'll let you kind of go a little bit more. Right. So again, back to the porous material, mm-hmm. if you're putting it in a wood desk and over time it's going to be, you know, it's porous. So yeah. the odor is going to be able to move through, yeah. which in some cases is good if that's what you want. But if you're wanting the dog to be mm-hmm. very spot on, mm-hmm. I would make sure the material that you're using is mm-hmm. the best for the dog. So mm-hmm. it's not going to be very porous. So you could use the PVC. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would just keep that in mind. If you could cap the jar between runs or cap the whatever the source is in, mm-hmm. that would be great. So you're mm-hmm. not letting it sit there over time. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And within your research, one of the things that uh, tying into all this stuff, we also discussed was handler bias. Um, dealing with uh, undue influence that whether we know we're doing or not is happening. Um, we discussed even today, you know, how you go about avoiding handler bias on your research. Um, so one, I guess, how strong is handler bias that you have to pay attention to throughout the initial part of training? And then two, what are things that you guys do to help reduce handler influence or handler bias from the dog? So the study that we've been talking about, um, I'm the handler, we're walking through, so it's more of a manual search, Mm -hmm. a a manual lineup for the dog. Mm -hmm. And I am blind to where the odor is. In Mm -hmm. the beginning, when I'm first training, I know where it is because if we're all blind, nobody knows where it is. That doesn't work. Um, But once we're officially in the training and testing, I am blind. Mm -hmm. And then I also have someone who helps me place the jars. They're also blind. Mm -hmm. And they're not facing the dog. So nobody's looking at the dog except for me, but I I don't know where it is. Yep. So if I knew where it was and I see the dog start to walk Correct. towards that jar, maybe I tense up, uh-huh. maybe I start to lean, yep. maybe I put my hand in my pocket, yep. and then the dog will stop and they look at you and they're like, oh, it's here. And they yep. don't even have to smell it because yep. I'm moving. Correct. And so having the double blind is great because I just stand there and I mm-hmm. wait for the dog to tell me yep. it's in one, two, or three. Mm-hmm. Um, but for future studies, what we're going to do is make an automatic, mm-hmm. um, an automated lineup so yep. I won't even be there yep. um, I won't be watching the dog whatsoever mm-hmm. it'll be a machine a program that we're mm-hmm. going to use and essentially if it's right um, and the dog alerts correctly the computer will drop the treat down yep. and so it's eliminating the handler bias I'm not sticking my mm-hmm. hand in the pocket I'm mm-hmm. not moving yep. so then the dog knows it's picking up on my cues instead of actually alerting to that odor correct and, and those that have been or have seen some of my social media posts uh, for Silver State Canine and on my own page, uh, I combat this at our facility by using a Schutzen blind that I've put out in the environment. So when the dog is released to go search the environment, the handler stands behind the blind, can only see through the little peephole up top. Uh, when the dog does finally make a choice, uh, if that decision is correct, obviously we use a marker-based system so the dog hears a click or the word for us is free. When the dog hears that, it knows it's correct and can come get reward. 
Um, in your sequence, one of the things that we talked about a little bit is when you, like you said, you're blind to it, you call out the number, it's then confirmed to you by the individual in another location that that is correct. People are going to be concerned like, well, that takes too long. So how, what did you, how did you guys ensure that there was duration? The dog basically holds that because I watched it. The dog held the position until you guys went through your sequence of confirmation. Um, what did you get? Was that a result of the marker training? You guys basically, did you guys build duration in your training? Like what did you guys do to help do that? Yes. So we built the duration. So way in the beginning, the first few days, um, I would just click and treat when the dog would change the behavior. Mm -hmm. And then slowly over time, I would increase the duration, have a very slight delay. Mm -hmm. But then once you get to the point where you're officially training, it's been a few weeks, mm -hmm. depending on how many trials you're doing each mm -hmm. day, you can have confidence and you can have that delay without worrying about, oh, I'm not giving a treat right away. The dog's just gonna walk away and say, yep. oh, I'm through with this, I'm not getting my hot dog. Yep. But it's great because you're building that confidence with the dog. You're not having to influence the dog whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I can wait a few seconds, if not a minute or so, mm -hmm. while I'm waiting for the person to tell me correct or incorrect, then mm -hmm. I can click and treat. Mm -hmm. And so having that delay, that duration mm -hmm. is excellent because the dog's not moving, the mm -hmm. head's still staying, oh, yeah. saying it's here, it's here, it's yep. here. Yep. So we just slowly build that over time. So your beginning step when you did this, did you guys just have one container only, the dog put its nose into it, and let's say you click? Is that uh, how you guys start? Describe your guys' very beginning start process so that way the listeners can kind of understand how you began. Because obviously it's not searching in this sense first. It's just you have a target. They're doing something that's being reinforced, and you guys build duration off of that. But go ahead, describe that so they can understand. Yeah, so the very first step, I want them to know the name of the game. Yep. I want them to see this lineup and think, oh my goodness, I'm going to work, and I'm mm -hmm. going to get hot dogs mm -hmm. for this. Mm -hmm. So the first thing I do is I use the entire lineup. I use the setting the first day, yep. all three ports. Mm -hmm. And I have a food jar. It's mm -hmm. just a jar and has kibble in it. Yep. And so I still use the mesh. I still use blanks. So mm -hmm. everything's there's still mm -hmm. three jars. Everything's mm -hmm. normal. Mm -hmm. um, but once they realize, oh, I need to find the food, mm -hmm. then I go ahead and switch to odor. So mm -hmm. I switch to the amyl acetate. Mm -hmm. And then I do very, like, the dog will search. Once it maybe stops, holds its head there, I'll click and treat. So mm -hmm. I don't have that delay that we mm -hmm. talked about. Mm -hmm. um, but I do whatever the dog wants to do. They're changing mm -hmm. behavior. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll mark that. Because mm -hmm. so, that's the only jar that has something in it now. Because initially, the initial jars, two were blank. One had the food in it. So the dog goes up to the one that has food in it, only food. What did, how did you prevent, let's say, the dog from scratching at it or biting at it or doing whatever it's going to naturally do in order to get that food out of there? What did you guys do to combat that? So we do actually have some dogs that want to naturally paw. Yeah. And I don't reward for the paw. I okay. reward for the stare. Mm -hmm. I reward for, you know, whatever change of behavior because mm -hmm. I don't want them to paw because mm -hmm. I don't want dirt to go in. Correct. I don't yep. want them to knock it over, mm -hmm. things like that. Yep. And they learn very quickly that if I stick my nose here and hold it, yep. I'm going to get a hot dog. Correct. So it's not very difficult to extinguish mm -hmm. that pawing mm -hmm. behavior. Mm -hmm. But once I've moved on from the kibble jar, I mm -hmm. moved to the odor, and I mm -hmm. always have one odor and two blanks. Yep. And so that's essentially the name of the game. They mm -hmm. understand that oh, I need Oh, this to jar is different. Right, mm -hmm. right. And so um, they just will hold that behavior, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that's essentially how, how we train yep. them. Okay. Because yeah, that's always the biggest hurdle because what, what happens many times when people do this the animal, the dog, will go up and just touch and come back because they're so used to it. They think it's almost like a touching game. 
So way the way you guys combated that was you said you gave you put a high value reward at that location. They held it there. Now, obviously, the kind of dogs you guys dealt with and what a lot of the working dog world deal with is slightly different. The drive levels or the actual behaviors, the the motivators is probably the best description. The dogs that we work with are highly motivated for certain things, so they're bound to do, um, I would say, destructive or active behaviors. So it's for the listener, you can do a very similar process. The container in which you use, you can put things that make it more difficult. So like at our world at Silver State, we have the concrete blocks. So it's the same kind of container within the concrete block. So if the dog wants to do anything else, nothing's going to happen. And there's no self-rewarding behaviors that occur by pushing the thing around or biting at it or what have you. But again, using that marker-based system, all they have to do initially is their nose goes into it, into that space and you're marking that. And then if you build off of that, the duration comes pretty easy. What happens is people become frustrated, or people actually say wait too long, the animal becomes frustrated, and that frustration is exhibited in those outward behaviors. Is that kind of... Yeah, and so when I say we have the duration in the beginning, that slight de- delay, it's very small. Mm-hmm. So the first couple of days, because we do maybe about an hour, 30 minutes per mm-hmm. day, every day. Mm-hmm. But the first few days, the dog is smelling it, and then... Uh, it'll hold and I'll click and treat. Mm-hmm. So then maybe the next day I'll count one, two, click treat. Yeah. So it's very small, just yep. a few seconds delay, mm-hmm. but then you build that. Mm-hmm. And then after a few days, you can have that mm-hmm. hold. It's very, you know, they're confident that it mm-hmm. is here. Mm-hmm. But I definitely wouldn't start, you know, that one minute delay or yeah. count to 20 after yep. they first change their behavior because then they're going to get frustrated. They're not going to want to participate. And then you're going to be, you know, trying to get them back interested and you're going to have to take all of those steps backwards. Yep. So if you start slow, you can build. Yep. No, time. and that's as every dog trainer and handler knows right now, one of our best qualities is patience, right? So we have to learn to have patience and take those small steps because the way I always kind of describe it is, it's like having that big, huge rock. It's hard to push at first, but once you've pushed it, it rolls downhill very fast. So those first very small minor steps seem difficult. You're like, oh, I gotta do that step and that step and that step. I promise you, it goes very quickly. And once you got that rock rolling down the hill, it goes very fast. And again, I got to watch with the dogs here, they're using dogs that most of us on the professional side would be like, eh, I don't know if I'd ever pick that dog. The dog is doing the exact same things in detection as our dogs do, with the exception of going, let's say, out into a very stressful environment such as loud noises and so on and so forth. It is a more controlled, quieter environment. So minus the nerve strength, the ability of the dogs to detect odor is the same regardless of the high drive or the high energy, highly motivated dog compared to a dog who is more calm in, in, in nature. So before we end, though, you have your moral support colleague here with you. I'll have her scoot up and describe, you know, tell us your name and what you've been doing here at Texas Tech and some of your research that you have. Hi, my name is Stephanie Soto. I'm a second year master's student. I'll be graduating in just a few months. Um, may go on to vet school or pursue a PhD, um, continue that realm. I started off with a study um, mainly in detection. Mm -hmm. So what we were looking at was if we could potentially create a pre-assessment for 
let's say in the real world in a working situation you know you get so many dogs that um, are being brought to you all um, and you need to kind of assess how well they're going to do most of the time you don't really know how well they're how well they're going to do until you're pretty far in yeah. um, cost wise and time wise absolutely and so we were looking at creating an assessment using motivational odors mm -hmm. um, so we used a chicken broth and a peanut butter they were trained for maybe two three minutes tops just mm -hmm. to get the idea of the game and we did use the same lineup that Mallory used yeah um, and so what we found was that we were able to create um, and to find their thresholds with these odors mm -hmm. and we were able to select a few that were um, or you know stood out from the rest yeah. essentially yeah now will those dogs perform better in other settings you know that was a very pre preliminary study that we were not yeah. um, we have not looked into yet so sure the, and the one thing that we talked about with Nathan this afternoon was uh, using that as a as we talked about as the gauge but also tell the listeners what we decided to do after that what we're gonna do to modify your test to uh, when we were sitting there talking about, uh, you said, oh, that's a great idea. We can just make that modification, use those dogs, and, and do that research. Oh, yes, right. Okay, so um, what we've decided to do now, um, since Mallory has kind of found these dogs' thresholds, the, the current cohort that we have here at the lab, um, I'm going to go ahead and run them on that pre-assessment um, mm -hmm. soon. Well, I'll find out when. but um, yeah. And just kind of see if the dogs that stood out in her assessment whose thresholds we actually have, uh -huh. we'll be able to um, do the same thing in that phase where we are not training, essentially, yeah. or having very little training. Yeah. Done. Uh, so. so what has been, what is your goal going forward being out here? What is something that you wish to do within the detection dog community? So um, if pursuing a PhD is what I end up doing, and again, that's still very up in the air, um, yeah. one of the things that we're looking into is uh, utilizing environmental chambers to hopefully be able to um, get an idea of what the dogs are um, in, you know, in the different environments that they're in, yep. get a feel for how uh, their olfactory sense senses change when, mm -hmm. for example, they are um, in a helicopter right before mm -hmm. they're being brought down to work. Mm -hmm. um, will that high altitude and that quick drop in altitude affect their olfactory senses. Mm -hmm. That's not really something that's been looked into, mm -hmm. as well as different temperature changes. You mentioned, yep. you know, dogs being brought from different, completely different um, or opposite temp temperature ranges mm -hmm. um, in a, you know, 10, 12 hour flight. Yep. What is that going to do? Um, how much time do they need to acclimate mm -hmm. to that mm -hmm. temperature and environment to be able to um, perform as they should? Yeah, no. And for the listeners, I got to see this really cool chambers that they have. And the ability to change temperature, let's say go from temps at 100 and let's say 5 and then pull them out and then have them go search in a temperature range that's in the 60s and seeing how that is. Or going from a temperature range in the you know below freezing time or uh, temperature to then going and having to search in something hot, you know, whether it be close to 100 degrees or whatever. How will that drastic temperature change affect the olfactory senses? So again, that's really cool research that's out there um, that'll be you know hopefully coming up. The and there's a lot of good on the military side of it from my side when working with special forces. Um, those are things that we're not sure of. You could be in one region of the world and the temperatures are at that level, and then 12-hour flight, you're in someplace else. So not only do you have the temperature change, 
but that 12 hour flight, you have the altitude that you're at for the, that, that period of time. And what does that do? So that's all great information. Um, again, I thank you both for coming on and, and doing this. I know you guys were like, really, I want to do a podcast. What's going on? So, and, and Nathan, so again, for our listeners, um, contact me. Uh, we'll be doing hopefully more work together with Silver State Canine and Texas Tech University and myself. Um, shoot me an email, Ford at SilverStateK9.com. That's F-O-R-D at SilverStateK, the number nine.com. I hope everybody enjoyed this episode. If you got any questions, feel free to shoot me an email and we'll hear you on the next one. That concludes this episode. I hope everybody enjoyed this episode with Mallory DeChant. And I also hope you guys got some great information from this or actually learned something new from this interview. Upcoming, our next episode has been a long-awaited episode with my good friend, uh, Dr. Brian Hare from Duke University's Canine Cognition Center. Many of you have seen Dr. Hare through either a 60 Minutes episode or his TV show that he had on Nat Geo Wild called Is Your Dog a Genius? He's also been instrumental at various conferences discussing the field of canine cognition and the things that we've learned from that. So stay tuned. In a couple weeks, you'll get to hear the episode with uh, Dr. Hare from Duke University. If you have any questions about the current episode or any other episode, please feel free to email me at Ford, F-O-R-D, at SilverStateK, the number 9.com. That's Ford at SilverStateK9.com. Thanks again.